This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. All right, it's good to see every one of you. Let's get into God's word. Um, I'm happy that I'm happy about the recaps um, that we were able to get. But let me just briefly do a brief recap, just to remind us of what we talked about last week Sunday. So last week Sunday we talked about. We're going to talk about popular scriptures that are considered promises of wealth for everybody, right? That God has promised that everybody will be rich, um, you know, rich financially. We're talking about financially. And we, we began to look at a couple of those scriptures. Now we try to stay with two Old Testament scriptures and one New Testament scripture, which are kind of linked. Um, first of all, we know the one of the Lord has given us power to make wealth, right? And so we saw that if you just read the whole chapter, in fact, if you read the whole book in context, what you will find is that the ability to make wealth, that statement was God describing what will happen to the Israelites. It was not a promise of salvation. It was not a promise of what will happen to Christians. God was just describing through the mouth of Moses what will happen to the Israelites, meaning that God will give them a land where they can draw resources from. Hallelujah. So the ability to make wealth was the fact that God was giving them a land that they could make resources from. Hallelujah. So it was not a promise of wealth for everybody. It was rather um, a, a description and a warning to the Israelites that they should not forget God. Because these are things, we'll, we'll still talk about it. Because Moses already warned us from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we'll see those warnings. What Moses warned there is similar to what Jesus warned about riches and what the apostles warned about riches. That when you become rich and fat, the tendency is that you begin to tell yourself that I have done this by myself, therefore I don't need God. So God is not of use to me. That's what happens when people go to Canada, you understand? It's similar to the prayer of, the, of that man in the book of Proverbs that says, don't bless me with the kind of money that will make me to forget you and curse you. Do you understand? Money has that tendency. There's nothing like, um, it just has that tendency. When you have a sense of independence, I don't want to go into some things this morning. There was a philosophical article I read some time ago when they said political, active, polit- political scientists are beginning to redefine what it means for progressivism. Let me not go that route. Maybe that is more like high level. Let me not go that route. Hallelujah. Basically, what it means is that prosperity and riches and resources, when you are reminded that you don't, when, you're, when, you, are, when you are made to forget your physical limitations, you begin to forget your need for God. Hallelujah. So God was warning the Israelites that when I give you this land where there will be wealth, don't forget me. So it was not deeper than that. It was not God promising Christians that everybody will be rich. Now, this is what it means to do proper Bible study. This is what exegesis means. Exegesis means that you study the scriptures to find what God or what their person, what God was saying through the person. Not what you want to hear. Not your extrapolation. What did the person mean to say? Do you understand that? That's what proper Bible study is. Proper Bible study is to find what the writer or what the speaker was saying, what the Holy Spirit was saying through the mouth of that speaker. What was Moses saying? He was warning the Israelites not to forget God when they have money in the land of Canaan. So because you are not an Israelite 3,000 years ago, because you are not moving to the land of Canaan, you cannot say that scripture applies directly to you. However, what are the implications of that statement? What can we learn? Because when you see what God meant to say in a scripture, after seeing what he meant to say, you now ask yourself, how does it apply to me? If you want to look at that chapter and see what, how it applies to you, the first lesson you should even learn is that you should be careful of wealth. Isn't it? Shouldn't that be the first lesson you will learn? When Moses was warning them, thou shalt not forget the Lord your God. So the first lesson is not God has promised me riches. The first lesson is what? I should be careful, isn't it? Do you understand what I'm saying here? Did you get what I just said? The first lesson you should learn is that I should not forget the Lord my God. The second lesson that we learned, and we looked at what Apostle Paul said on the matter of wealth in other places, was that even the power to make wealth was not given to only the Canaanites. There was nothing about that statement that was exclusive. God was describing what he had done for the Israelites. But the same way he gave the Israelites the, the land of Canaan, where there was gold and copper in the hills, where there was iron and copper in the hills, and there was wheat and honey 
and all those things. It's the same way we read in Acts chapter 14, verse um, 14 to 18, that God also gave the pagan countries rain and food and all those things for them to prosper with. Hallelujah. He's the one that makes rain to fall on the just and the world. That's why Elon Musk and atheists can be an unbeliever. The power to make wealth is given to all men. Church, all together. Another thing that we must learn from that is that the fact that God has given human beings the power to make wealth does not translate into meaning that everybody should, I didn't even say will now, does not mean everybody should make wealth. You understand what I just said now? Let me explain it again. Because if God has given the land of Canaan to all the Israelites and they had the power to make wealth, we see many people in the scriptures that did not use that power to make wealth. Did Isaiah use the power to make wealth? The Jeremiah used the power to make wealth. The Jonah used the power to make wealth. Do you understand what was happening here? Did Nathan use the power to make wealth? The prophet Samuel used the power to make wealth. Why? Because you must understand that the orientation of a believer is purpose, not making money. Do you understand that? Mm-hmm. So God can give you the power to make wealth does not mean you will not be chasing money. That's, that chapter was purely descriptive. Hallelujah. Praise God. And then we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 15, where the Lord told the Israelites that he will make them learn to nations and they will not beg and he will enable them to be able to learn to nations that they will never have to borrow from nations. And that scripture has been read as something that everybody that has the covenant, every child of God should be able to learn to nations and they will never have to borrow money from people. And we read it in context and we saw what it meant. That the ability to lend to nations is not a comment on how much on you being richer than other nations. Rather, it's a comment on generosity. So that the same country that we read, you read everything again, Deuteronomy chapter 15. The same country where God told them that you will not that you will lend to nations and not borrow, is the same country, the same place. He told them that the poor will never cease among you. There will always be poor people among you. So make sure that your hand goes out to to bless them. Make sure that you, your hand reaches out to help them. On the seventh year, make sure you always forgive them of their debts. So the ability to lend to nations, the ability to give money to other people, is does not mean that you will be the richest person. It just means that God has, you will not be destitute. And anyone that is not destitute has something to give. Did you hear what I just said now? Anyone that is not destitute has something to give. And we saw it, that's why Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, that let it that is to steal before stop stealing, so that you can now have what to use and to give to those who are what in need. So, let me use certain occupations that in our minds, in our context, we look at them as E, poor people, right? That God, you know, God is delivering us from all those evil mentalities. So that means that a Christian organizer can lend to nations. Do you understand that? If he has a source of income, he has, a, he has a house over his head, he's eating, then he has something to give. Church, I get what I'm saying to you. It means your, the barber and the hairdresser has something to give. The farmer can learn to nations. That means even a student that's relying on their parents, but God has supplied their needs, they can learn to who? Nations. Everybody here, because I don't know anybody that's destitute here. And if anybody's destitute here, we'll make sure that you're not destitute. All right? Because that's the point we can gather together and then somebody's destitute. So I know that I know there's nobody here that is destitute. So every one of you here can learn to nations. Learning to nations does not mean that we'll not be richer than America or that we're richer than the Paris country, uh, country club that gives billions of dollars in known. We'll be richer than IMF. That the church must be richer than IMF. Because God said, we'll rate up what the means. And we saw the direct implication of that in the New Testament, such that the church that was considered extremely poor still gave. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. So that the country, this, the church, the nation that was extremely poor, the Philippians were extremely poor, yet they were still able to what? Give. So lending to nations is not a comment on you being the richest person. It is a comment on generosity if you are not destitute. Should I just say now? Church, you understand me? Hallelujah. And then we look at 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 that says that even though um, we know that we would, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that you through his poverty can become what? Rich. And we looked at it in the New Testament that when the apostles 
it's very interesting. If you look at it through the New Testament from the Lord to the Apostles, financial riches was kind of looked at with side eye. And the riches that was exalted was the riches of the grace of God. So any man that has an inheritance in heaven, any man that has the righteousness of God, any man that has an inheritance in heaven, any man that knows God is the man that is rich. And a man that does not know God is the man that is what? Poor. We read in the book of Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, that though a man can be poor, Jesus said, though your church is poor, you are rich. He looked at a rich church and said, though you are rich, you are what? Poor. Because real riches, as far as God is concerned, is the man that has God. A man that has the grace of God. And that's what it means when it says that Jesus became poor even though he was rich. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, to, to relinquish his godness and to take on the form of a servant. So God was in heaven. He became a man. So that after becoming a man, we can now have God. So that is the reason why he became poor. Heaven is riches. That's why your inheritance in heaven is what makes you rich. Do you understand what happened there? Do you understand what happened there? Hey, that's what it means when it says he became poor. Your inheritance in heaven, the riches of your inheritance is in heaven. Jesus left that heaven and became a man. He took on man humanity. So that by becoming a man, dying and suffering for your sake, you can now have heaven. That's what it means when he says, he will know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became what? Poor. So that you through his poverty can become what? rich. That so now, he was in heaven, he became man, so that you can now be seated in heavenly places, far above all principalities and what? Powers. Do you understand what's happening here? And if a man is thinking, and a man has common sense, and is reading that scripture, when you read verse 5, that says a church was extremely poor, then gets to verse 9, and now says that you might become rich. You should already know that the poor and rich is talking about are not the same. Do you understand that? Do you understand what I'm saying here? It's just common sense. Is he saying that Jesus did not die for that church? Or that church is not saved? If Jesus did something and a church, a church of Christ that has entered salvation does not have it, then that means that's not what Jesus died for. Church, I don't know what I'm saying to you. And that reminds me, that brings me to something I've been saying to you guys. I hope you now understand much better. Hallelujah. I hope you now understand it much better. That Jesus did not die to make anybody rich. Neither did Jesus die actually to make anybody poor. Jesus died so that you can fulfill his will for your life. Jesus did not die and suffer and was crucified and rise again so that we can be rich. That means socioeconomically being in the higher class. Neither did he die for anybody to be in any lower socioeconomic class. Jesus died so that you can fulfill his purpose for your life. As you are fulfilling the purpose of God for your life, you will find yourself somewhere in that ladder. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And that's all. It's not deeper than that. Praise God. So we're going to continue today. I'm going to try to make it quick. Hallelujah. So we're still as assessing scriptures. This one is particularly interesting. Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60. This is another scripture that people have looked at as a promise that everybody should be rich. Now I'm going to read the whole chapter carefully and I want you to follow me, read your Bible and be looking at it as I'm reading it. And you, God will help us today. Hallelujah. <laughs> Are we ready? Isaiah chapter 60. Praise God. So we're going to read it together. Isaiah chapter 60 is a popular scripture. Almost every Pentecostal church, you know, they read it at the beginning of every year and it's a promise that people or the church of God or Christians should become rich. And again, I know I've been saying this a lot, but I'll keep saying it. Many of these things did not come from some people being in a bad place. Many just came from people not being, not being competent in administering God's word. You understand, you will see now. Isaiah chapter 60 is really thought of as a promise that the church and Christians should be very, very rich. And let's read it together. And I want to, because it's a long chapter, I don't want to have to go through it many times to point out things. So make sure that you're paying attention to every part, right? Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Are you saying that? <laughs> so kings will come to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. 
all assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar. Your daughters are carried on the heap. They will look and be radiant, and your heart will throb and swell with joy. Hallelujah. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you, and the riches of the nations will come to you. Hallelujah. Dollars from America, euro from Europe, pounds from Britain, yen from Japan, and every other nation, they will bring their riches to you. Hallelujah. Verse 6. Herds of camel will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all the sheep. But we don't have camels today, but cars. Well, hallelujah. Bearing gold and incense. We still have gold today, so gold is still good. Hallelujah. And nice perfumes. Bulgari, um, um, Essenza. Please, I don't know the name of perfumes. What are the incenses? Just give me the names. Hallelujah. And proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All of Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nabaioth will serve you. Hallelujah. And they will be accepted as offerings on my altar. I will adorn my glorious temple. Praise God. You are the temple of God. Hallelujah. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Say amen. amen. Uh -uh. So you shall be adorned with all kinds of offerings from all the nations of the earth. In fact, in fact, you are the temple. So just be claiming it. Hallelujah. Who are these that fly among like, like the clouds, like doves to their nets? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and their gold to honor the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. He has endowed you with pleasure, splendor. Hallelujah. See, the name of Jesus needs to be honored. And for you to honor it, you must be endowed with wealth. Praise God. For you to honor God and glorify God, you need money and great riches from all around the world to honor God. Amen. All people are hearing my tongue properly. Okay. Verse 10. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that people may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphant association. So your account number will always be open. Morning and night you'll be getting alerts. Morning and night you'll be getting alerts. You're afraid of saying amen. Mm. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. So anybody that does not want to give to you, any nation that does not want to save you will perish. Who said amen? <laughs> are you saved? <laughs> so you know that if you're a Christian, if you truly understand the epistles, you know this verse should touch you that ah, I've been saying amen before. But Jesus said that. Ah, hey, Paul said that. Ah, how can after the Lord says we should turn the other cheek, he now says the nation that does not save me will perish. How can Paul say that you should not repay, return, repay evil with evil, but repay good with good, and all those who are doing evil to you, do them good, so by so doing that, how can now say that those that do not do what I want, they will die? You know you will already start feeling funny. You will see who he's talking about now. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the fig, and the cypress together to adorn my sanctuary, I will glorify the place of my, of my feet. Hallelujah. So the sanctuary of God, the temple of God, the church of God, where God's children gather, must be glorious, it must be excellent. So God will bring resources into it so that we can have massive buildings, beautiful buildings, nice decorations, nice stage lights, and Italian marble, and golden faucets in the toilets and all that. Verse 14. The children of your oppressors will come down bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. All the people that have persecuted the church, that when we are using our speakers, they report us to Lagos State. They report us to Lagos State and they're telling us to be silent. They will come and bow in the church. They will come to church and say, in fact, I've even heard some funny testimonies. Somebody said that he reported the church for making too much noise and after that he started falling sick. He said, See, be careful with the anointed. Hallelujah. May God have mercy on us. Verse 15. Although you have been forsaken and hated, with no one traveling through you, I will make you the everlasting pride, the joy of all generations. You should have thought you doing that. How can I be the joy of many generations? How can I be the everlasting pride? Verse 16. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at the royal breast. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, the Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Ah, okay. Verse 17, instead of bronze, I will bring you gold, and in silver, a place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze, and in iron, a place of stones. I will make peace your governor, and well-being your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin nor destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation, and your gates praise. Okay, so the wall 
laws of this nation of Zion is salvation. <laughs> okay. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. So that means that when you come out, it's not the sun you will see. It's God you will see. Okay? For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again. Your moon will never win no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your sorrow will end. So, wait. I want you to take it literally. If we are taking all the wealth of nations literally, then that means we must almost also take this one literally, isn't it? That when we come out, we will not see the sun. When we come out, we will not see the moon. Everything will just be bright because God is with us. And every day, every day, it will just be brightness, brightness, brightness. Those that have been with me in Ibadan will have known when I thought about what the scripture actually means. That's why they are looking at me. They are not surprised. Hallelujah. Verse 21. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. All your people will be righteous. So if we're ever taking this thing literally, it means that there will be no more coconut-headed believers again. People that are behaving like children of Satan and twisting all kinds of things. You understand what I'm saying? They will not be in church again. Hallelujah. They are, um, they are the shoots I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's in its time, I will do this swiftly. Look at it now ended. It now said, I am the Lord. And in its time, I will do this swiftly. In its time, I will do this swiftly. Again, it's not the fault of many of these people because I think when I was in school, when I was a pastor in school, I think I've already taught it like this too, you understand? So, then I didn't know much, all right? So, and I knew that God has had mercy on me and I've repented of all that. Hallelujah. You've noticed something if you read the scripture. Um, there are three major themes of what the Lord will do in this Zion, this new Zion he's talking about. You will notice three themes. Number one theme you will notice is that the nations will be trooping in. The countries of the world will troop into this new Zion. This new Zion that he describes, he says they are, the walls of this new Zion will be salvation. Um, this new Zion is a nation that if you don't serve this new Zion, you will be judged and you will perish. That means if you don't come to this new Zion to bow down and worship, you will be what? Perished. The people that used to persecute this new Zion before, they will now come down and bow down to this new Zion. Hallelujah. So that's the first thing. Write it down. The first thing you see, we will see everything. The first thing is, of, like, like I said, the nations are coming to this to Zion. Hallelujah. The second theme you will see is that there's going to be an end to the suffering of those who are in Zion. People who are in Zion, their suffering will come to an end. Hallelujah. Those who are in Zion, their suffering will come to an end. That's the second theme. The second theme is that those who are in Zion, their suffering will come to an end. Number three theme is that God is the glory of this new Zion. God is the glory of this new Zion. That means that what makes this Zion so special is that God is going to be resident there. And so this Zion will not need the sun. It will not need the moon. Do you, do you understand? That's every fire, everything that he has is because God is going to be resident. He said darkness will cover every other thing. But the glory of God will rise on this new Zion. So this new Zion will be different when darkness covers everywhere all around. Hallelujah. Praise God. So, you know, what is this new Zion? And is this Zion a promise? Are the Christians of today in this world, this Zion that he's talking about, either figuratively or expressly? The good thing about it is that we have the prophets and the apostles upon whom the church has been founded to check what they said. Praise God. If the apostles have interpreted and tell us who this scripture is talking to, should be we will accept it. Abi? And nobody can believe or say that they know more than apostles, or man, the apostles, isn't it? Well, I know some people have said that they know more than, more than the apostles and the apostles make mistakes, but that is not correct. The apostles are the foundation upon which the church is built. If the apostles are fallible, our Christianity is fallible, praise God. That's a different matter. Maybe one of these days we'll talk about it in church, all right? Hallelujah. So, it's a good thing that God has given us the apostles to tell us who and what this scripture is about. Hallelujah. First of all, in Mark chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, rather. In Ephesians chapter 5, 
There is a formula there. So in the early church, before the Gospels were written, and people started writing letters, a lot of things that happened, a lot of things that happened when Jesus was alive, when the early apostles and God's, Jesus' disciples were talking, they had formulas by which they spoke. So that means that because of a culture of oral tradition and all that, they would tell people what Jesus said. Um, they, would, they had formulas and hymns of things. And many times those hymns are like... Um, um, the combination of putting together of different scriptures from different places. Hallelujah. So, for example, if you read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, you will see that scripture that we read a lot, you know, for um, singing spiritual songs and all that. If you read verse, verse 14, it says, This is why it is said. So, this was a very early church formula. In the early church, before they started writing later, this is something that believers used to sing to themselves. They will, say, they will sing songs like, Wake up, sleeper. Now, these three lines are from three different parts of the scriptures. Do you understand? So it's like we singing, who has the final say, Jehovah? Oh, let me look for another song. Like a normal hymn that we sing. You know that we sing a normal Christian hymn. They're taking from, the first stanza can be taken from one part of the Bible, second stanza from, you understand that kind of thing. So that's what's happening here. So you see verse 14, say, this is why it is said. Wake up, sleeper. Wake up, sleeper. That one is taken um, from another part of the Bible. Rise from the dead. I think that's Isaiah chapter 65. And Christ will shine on you. When it says that Christ will shine on you, it's actually, it's actually Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1. Do you understand that? So, the first time Apostle Paul talks about that scripture, the first time he quotes Isaiah chapter 60, he talks about it in the sense of the glory of Christ rising upon person. And in this formula, it is used as wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It has nothing to do with money, but more about what Christ will do. Hallelujah. Praise God. However, there's another apostle that... Um, told us that explained to us exactly what Isaiah 60 was referring to. So remember the three themes of Isaiah chapter 60, right? Now you begin to read something. I said the first theme was what? The second theme was what? And the third theme was what? Alright. Revelation chapter 21. Let's start. <laughs> Revelation chapter 21. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And, led, and I heard a, a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. What's the, where's that from? What theme, theme number, what is that? Look at verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. Where's that from? That one is still vague. Let me just... I don't, I don't need to read the whole chapter. Let me just jump to verse 22. Let's read from verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are his temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is his Lamb. Where is that from? You see that it's almost quoting the verbatim. Verse 24. The nation will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. They will bring their wealth to it. What is that? What is that? On what day will its gates ever be shut? Do you remember that word? <laughs> For there will be no night there. The glory and the order and the honor of nations will be brought into it. Do you see that? Almost verbatim. Nothing impure will enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. Let me jump to chapter 22. Look at chapter 22 from verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great streets, on each side of the rivers to the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and it leaves on the tree of the healing of nations. Look at verse 3, almost verbatim. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will what? Seven. They will see his face and his name on their foreheads. There will be no more 
God's night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them what? And they will reign forever and what? What is it? You shall be an everlasting generation. Everlasting glory to the generations. You see that? Isaiah 60 was the Holy Spirit showing Isaiah the new heaven and the new earth. Do you understand now? Isaiah 60 was the Holy Spirit showing Isaiah the new heaven and the new earth. Do you understand now? It was not a promise that dollars will come from all the nations of the world to your pocket. It was a promise that all the nations of the world will enter heaven. I don't mean it in the universalist term. I mean outside of the Jewish nation. You understand? So not only Jews will go to heaven. All the nations of the earth will go to... Do you understand now? When it says any nation that will not save you will perish, it means anybody that does not want to collect will do what? Perish. Oh, correct. That's correct. Anybody that does not want to collect will what? Collect. When it says God will no more be your son or your knight, it means it that God will no more be your son. You understand? When it says your doors will not be shut day or night, it means the heaven door will never be shut day or night. When it says darkness will cover the people and great darkness will cover the God shall be your right and shall rise upon you, it means outside of this place, everywhere will be what? Darkness. Do you understand now? Isaiah 60. Claiming Isaiah 60 is God promising you that you'll be rich. Is as ridiculous as claiming Isaiah 9 means that the government is upon your shoulders. That's how ridiculous it is. Claiming Isaiah 60 is about God making you rich and America and Egypt and South Africa will bring money to you. Is as Let's open Isaiah chapter 9. As ridiculous as you're coming to say, for unto us a child is born, I am the child. For unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on my shoulders. And I will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hallelujah. It is my birthright. Of the greatness of my government, that's why we, the children of God, will take over. We will take over the government and the, and the peace, there will be no end. And my reign will be on David's throne and over his kingdom. Do you understand? That's how ridiculous you sound. Or going to read Isaiah chapter 11 and say, a, a virgin shall conceive and I shall be the virgin. Shall be conceived of the virgin of the gospel. That's actually how ridiculous it is. Imagine John prophesying and showing us that Isaiah 60 is a prophecy of what the Lord is going to do in the new earth and new, new heavens. And you now thinking that it's a scripture that means that you shall be rich. Hallelujah. You see how ridiculous it sounds? Again, for many of these people, it's because they did not know. They did not know. We've been there. That's what I did. Isaiah chapter 89. I claimed that one personally. If I even, I even canceled David's name and put my name. My wife knows that one. I did it when I was in school. They say, I have, I've anointed my son and uh, my son David and I've, and I've helped him mightily. I say, it's not David, it's Samuel. <laughs> And I'll be confessing, I have, I have helped my son Samuel, and his hand shall be mighty on God. No, that's not how to read your Bible. People will say, ah, it's not a big deal now because God is, God is help. Won't God still help us? Why can't we read it like that? That is the reason why we have all these problems today. Where people just take scripture and just change anything they like and say it can still work. That's why we're having all the problems today. What you will do with that kind of scripture is see that, okay, God helped David. Can God help me? Yes. It's not to say I am the David he was talking about. Do you understand now? What can we learn from Isaiah 60 as it's a prophecy for Revelation 21 and 22? What we can learn is that don't forget that we have the seal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the church tells us that he's a foretaste of things to what? Come. So that means that we can have a taste of heaven now. But it does not mean that we'll have heaven now. Do you understand that? So that means that you can have a fortress. It is possible that someone will get send you gift from America. It's possible. But that's not for you to say that that is a promise that everybody 
dollars will come to them and cars will come to them. Church, do you understand now? Please, next time someone is reading Isaiah chapter 16 and says, the glory of the Lord, we are the Zion, we are the Zion. Say, okay, which one, the new Zion or the old Zion? Just open Revelation 1 and 22 for them, tell them to read it. You need to fear the prophets. And that's why, listen to me, this is something basic about Bible study. Remember, Jesus has made it clear and the apostles have made it clear. He says, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you find eternal life. But they are they which testify of what? Me. Listen to me. When you are reading the Old Testament, don't be reading it and be saying and be claiming that it's talking to you. We've seen Deuteronomy 18, 8 now. We've seen Deuteronomy 15. We've seen Isaiah 60. We've seen the problems we keep running into. Don't read the Old Testament where God is talking to some people and be saying that it's talking to you. Things God was speaking to some people for your learning, for you to learn from and be rebuked. So when you see what God was saying to those people, you see God's value systems, you see the word of God, you see how God does his things, then you learn from it. Not for you to claim and say it is your own. Do you understand what I'm telling you now? See the problems that we have run into. We have believed so many things that have made God's word to seem like as if they are of non-effect, as if God is a liar. We've promised things and written checks that God never promised to cash. Then people go to the bank of the word of God expecting to cash the check and nothing is coming out of the ATM and they're angry and say that means the ATM must be a lie. That means God must be a lie. It doesn't work like that. You don't promise things that God did not promise. What we see from God's word is very clear is that even when he can take care of sparrows, he will take care of you. You will not be destitute. He did not promise anybody or everybody that will be rich. There's absolutely no place to hide. God's word for you to begin to insist otherwise is if after learning you see clearly that that's not what God's word says and you insist then your own is not a matter of good intentions that you just didn't know better now we now have to be talking about whether you're a false prophet or a Christ monger or a charlatan church out together There's one last scripture I want to talk about. Mark chapter 11. I thought about it. I told you Lord to just show me all the places that people can hide behind. And there's one more scripture because people can say, okay, even though the power to make wealth is not a promise that everybody will be rich, that is a description of what happened. And you shall learn to nations, it's not talking about you, it's just talking about generosity. And chapter 6 is not talking about you. You know, there's one place that people can come and say, ah, what about if we stand here? And what is that place? Mark 11, verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you caused has what? Withered. Then Jesus said, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be what? Yours. So, someone can say, if I have faith and I believe that I will be rich, therefore I will be rich. Jesus has said that all I need to do is to believe and I will be rich, therefore I will be rich. Is this a plausible way to look at it? Hallelujah. I know I've thought about this many times, but I know if people will be hearing it for the first time. And if I say, if I pray to the message, I know a lot of people don't used to go and listen to the message. So let me just quickly run through what happened here. Hallelujah. Mark chapter 11 is not a teaching on a blank slate to believers to believe whatever they want and they will have whatever they like. Mark chapter 11 was Jesus teaching the apostles that faith is about believing in what God's will is. If you believe in the will of God, it will be done in your life. Mark chapter 11 is not a blank slate to believe whatever you like. He that says to this mountain, as if this mountain means any mountain, be ye moved and cast into the sea. It is not a promise of a blank slate to believe anything you want and you will have it. It's actually, it's, a, it's actually a teaching, a learning moment on that if you can believe and agree with God on what his will is, you will find his will being expressed in your life. If you believe in the preferred will of God, if you have faith in the preferred will of God, you will find your life being more and more in the preferred will of God. How do we know this? John chapter 15, verse 2. I can already open all the scriptures. John chapter 15, verse 2. John chapter 15, verse 2. 
every branch in me that bears no fruit, but every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. So, the teaching moment in Mark chapter 11 was that a tree was not bearing fruit when we believe, when Jesus believed that it should be bearing fruit. Because according to the manner of the figs, if you are leafing, if you are producing leaf, then that means that you are also should be producing fruit. And this tree was not producing fruit when it's supposed to be. And then we now begin to see what Jesus exemplified there. Jesus was not just all winning trying to show us and flex his power as if he's a deranged narcissist, a schizophrenic person that can just do whatever he likes. He just sees a, pure, a poor tree. The tree did not do anything for him. He just said, this tree, nobody will take fruit from me again and killed it with his word. And I say, what kind of Jesus is this? Jesus was just acting consistently with something that, he has, been, that has been said by the prophets from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And what is that thing? Any tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down. Jesus was just doing what he has said because he's the one that does what he says and says what he does. Do you understand what happened there? It's not deeper than that. Jesus is the person that does what he says and says what he does. Jesus will come and tell you that any tree that does not bear fruit, then he will see a tree that does not bear fruit and look away. What kind of Jesus is that? If the tree does not bear fruit, when it does not bear fruit, it will collect. That's what happened there. It's not deeper than that. So that's what he was now using to teach them. That he that says to this mountain. So the context, the context, the denominator was Jesus doing what he has said. What his word said. What his father has said. So that means there is no way that you acting in faith can be about you doing what you like. It is you doing what God has said. Do you understand what I'm saying here? The context is Jesus acting consistently with what he has said. So your faith must be you acting consistently with the word of God. You say, I can confess anything. There's power in my mouth. There's power in my mouth. I can say anything I like. I can shape the universe. No, you cannot. Let God be God. Hallelujah. You cannot say your own and God is saying his own. God cannot be saying one thing. You now say you, you have faith for something else. If you want to try and test your faith, begin to confess today that my wife will become your wife. Try. Go ahead. Let's see. Oh yeah, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Try. I go saying here. Look at verse 6 of the same, of the same chapter. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withered. Such branches are picked up and thrown in the fire. And that says, if you remain in me, it goes on. That way, it was talking about um, bearing fruit. Hallelujah. So, it's talking about if you don't abide in me, you will not bear fruit. And if you don't bear fruit, you will be thrown away. Hallelujah. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be what? Hey, Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. Are we together? The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be what? And done what? Was Jesus doing something strange? Matthew chapter 7, verse 19. This is the Lord himself speaking again. Matthew chapter 7, verse 19. chapter 3. In case you think it was only Jesus that was doing over Sabi, this is John the Baptist speaking. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be what? And thrown into the what? That's Luke chapter 3, verse 9. <laughs> Luke chapter 13. Verse 6. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for the fruit, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I have been coming to look for the fruit on this fig tree, and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should I use it? Uh, why should I use it? Why should it use upwards? <laughs> God does not have space or patience for non-performing things. Because 
non-performance is a negative. It's not a positive. You know, we talked about this that time, the salvation, salvation series. There's nothing like, I'm not producing fruit, I'm neutral. If you are not producing fruit, you are taking up soil. You are a negative. Every child of God in the believer setting, you are either adding to the church or you are taking away from the church. You are reducing the church. That means if you are a local church and you are not bearing any fruit, you are just there sitting down, you are actually negative to the local church because everybody is supposed to be adding. You are supposed to be supplying to each other so that every part of the body becomes stronger. The sinews and the bones and the ligaments become stronger in the body. There is no believer that is neutral. If you are not adding to the work, you are reducing the work. If you are not building the work, you are destroying the work. So that is the reason why a tree that is not bearing fruit is not neutral. It's a problem. So he said, cut it down. So when Jesus saw that fig tree and says down, he was not just being wicked. He was fulfilling his word. Church, do you understand what I'm saying here? So, God's word did not promise, Jesus did not die to promise anybody certain socioeconomic status. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, he says, My God shall supply all your needs. He was speaking in response to the generosity of the Philippian church. He says, I've learned how to abuse and to abound. It's not that I needed anything. But I want all these things to be an input into your account. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Folks, I've said, the way God will meet your needs is according to his riches. How rich is God? God is very rich. How rich is God? God is very rich. If, a, if Dan Gote should meet your needs according to his wealth, how much money will come to you? So because he's, written, he's meeting your needs according to his wealth, therefore the amount of money you will have is plenty this thing. Again, I want to assume that it's just incompetence in handling God's word that will make you say such a thing. What is he meeting? What is he meeting? What is the riches of his glory in Christ? Our salvation. So we know God's disposition towards us. We know that God is kind to us. We know that we have the grace of God. So that's why we know that when we have needs, God will meet them. It does not make sense that the person you are saying God will meet your needs according to his riches, that means to make you rich. He said it two verses before, that I've learned how to abase and how to abound. That means I know how to be poor and I know how to have more than enough. Is that the person you're talking about? Let me even bust your head. He was writing this letter from prison. He was writing this letter from prison. Be telling you that the, the God is going to make you rich. Like if someone is going to be allowed to collect them, this thing. You understand what I'm saying? How can someone from prison be writing a letter and be promising you that you'll be rich? He himself. He, 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 do you understand what I'm saying here? Praise God. What the Lord has promised us is that He will take care of us, is that He will meet our needs. As you are doing the purpose of what we'll talk about this more, practically, all these things that we've said, how does it affect our conduct as believers? We'll talk about it, you know, in the next next um, installment of, maybe if, if Carrie Sunday can hold next week, then we'll do it. If not, you understand what I'm saying? We'll talk it. What does that mean practically? Does that mean I should not get a good job? No, you understand what it means practically. But first of all, you must understand, there is no scripture that promises that every Christian should be rich. So nobody has a right to be offended when you say a poor Christian. Nobody promised that every Christian will be rich. You can't be angry and say, God, where are you? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not rich. What do you mean by that? Has God not met your needs? That's, where the, that's the way the prosperity gospel actually comes and makes people to be angry and dissatisfied even though God has been faithful. How many of you here can say God has not met your needs? How many of you here can say you are destitute? How many of you here can say God has not shown up for you when you could not help yourself? because you are not rich. God did not promise anybody that you will be rich. Whether you'll be rich or not is a matter of the kind of work that God sends you to do. It's that simple. Hallelujah. Church, let's bow down our heads and let's pray. We'll continue next Sunday. Bow down your heads and let's pray. Praise God. I, I, I perceive something in my heart. I want to pray in faith for everyone. And I don't know if there's someone in particular who this is the, the issue on their heart, in their hearts. I just have that impression. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you in the name of Jesus. That in your family, 
You might have come from a family that saw a lot of destitution and a lot of neediness. Where there were points in time where you did not have where to live and you were kicked out of your house and you had to go and live with someone and all that. I don't know what that is about, but I just wear it in my heart. I want to pray for you in the name of Jesus. That your family will never see destitution again. In the name of Jesus. Now that you have come into the knowledge of Christ, now that you know God, now that you have come into the knowledge of Christ, now that you know Jesus, and he has opened your eyes to see the riches of the glory of inheritance in the saints, you will never see destitution again. Your family will never see destitution again. That spirit of fear, those nasty voices whispering in your ear, telling you that maybe you will still see destitution and neediness. Maybe your children will see destitution and neediness. That maybe you will suffer destitution and neediness. That voice, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I, I, I pray for you that there is an end to that voice. In the name of Jesus, that anxiety, that anxiety, that destitution is coming, neediness is coming, you won't have what to eat, you won't have what to wear, you won't have where to live. That voice, that voice, that voice of Satan that is constantly lying to you, lying to you and is whipping up your emotions, making you scared, making you to grab onto things, making you to be stingy so you cannot be generous because you're trying to hoard as much as possible. I pray for you by the power of the Holy Spirit that God's word will do a work in your heart and you will never hear those voices again. Today, your anxiety about finances dies. In the name of Jesus. I say I pray for you in faith. In accordance to the word of God and his preferred will for us believers. According to our joint faith as children of God. Today marks the end to you. Every anxiety about finances in your life. The fear of poverty. That Satan has used to put you in bondage. An end has come to it today. Your anxiety comes to an end today. In the name of Jesus. Your eyes will begin to open to see all the opportunities that God has put around you. Men will help you. Men will support you. In the name of Jesus. Men will help you. Men will support you. In the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, we give you thanks. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.